I'm Elizabeth Rushing, and this is Humanity in War, an ICRC podcast on all things humanitarian law and policy. How does the youth today understand and feel about international humanitarian law and the policies in place that mitigate the effects of armed conflict? For me, IHL means a practical approach to humanity. In relation to war and conflict, it seems as a middle approach to understanding war and peace. I really hope that there will be more cooperation locally to provide more chances to provide trainings to youth about IHL. The fundamental thing that we need to focus on today and throughout time is the implementation of international humanitarian law. Because even though you can criticize the framework and you can criticize the rules that we have for different reasons and, and they're old and there's always things that could be better. I think IHL means to me that there's an important global consensus for humanity to restrict the means and method of armed conflict and to protect the people who are no longer not taking part in the hostilities. I think there's many ways for young people to be involved, including making their voices heard. What reassures me about the youth today is that we are reinventing ways of being and reclaiming our voices. We are doing the work of breaking intergenerational stereotypes and we are raising our voices, joining our hands for causes that are bigger than us. It's no surprise that today's youth are increasingly affected by war, especially in a world where situations are becoming more complex and more interconnected. We are bearing witness to active youth participation in a way we have never seen before, leading and joining protests, documenting and sharing stories on social media, volunteering for various organizations, taking up difficult conversations with decision makers, and of course, the many who are actually living through an active conflict. Identifying that youth will be the leaders of the future is also identifying that they are the ones we need to look to to share insight into legal and policy aspects of armed conflict. With this in mind, we're sitting down today with three incredible young women who share their own perspectives on IHL and humanitarian assistance, their understanding of the work ahead, and ultimately the hope to carry us forward as we look ahead onto another year. So I would like to begin the conversation today with Julie Le Foll, who is a legal advisor with us at the ICRC in our Operations and Commentaries Unit in the Legal Division. Julie holds an LLM in International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights from the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. Welcome, Julie. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And so I'd like to begin with a quick overview of your work here at ICRC and also prior to your work at ICRC. So can you please lead us through what it's like to be an ICRC associate? What are some of the files that you work on in your associate role? And what ultimately drew you to working in this sector? Yes, absolutely. I'm from France, but my family is from Haiti, which is a beautiful country where I've been to every two years since I've been a kid. I've been able to go to school and to see how life there is different from the life we know. And the population has had to fight with difficulties such as this dictatorship, uh, international intervention, natural disaster, and today gang violence. So growing up, actually, I've seen humanitarian aid being given to the people around me. I've seen uh, blue helmets when I was going out of the airport. I've seen land cruisers of the Red Cross everywhere. I've seen UN camps being built. 
So I've seen the action. I've seen how it can be good. I've also seen how there can be problematics created by the humanitarian sector. I'm talking corruption or uh, sexual violence scandals or excessive use of force and things like that. And I always thought I want to be a part of it and I want to understand how the decisions are made and how we can fight for the humanitarian aid given to people are actually made in a way which respects them. So I decided to study law. And then for three years, I worked in migration, helping people get residence permit and then access to healthcare. I also worked with the French Red Cross in helping families find each other because they lost each other during armed conflict or during the migration. And then I'm now a legal associate with the legal division of the ICRC. I was lucky enough to be able to work in three different units, first privileges and immunity. So I was helping in protecting the confidentiality of the ICRC. Then in the commentaries unit, which is about interpreting the law of war, so the Geneva Convention, in light of the modern conflict that we have today. And then my third unit in which I'm working in uh, since the beginning of the year is legal advice to operation, meaning that we give practical legal advice, which can help the people in countries where operations are being uh, carried out in their dialogue with states, with military or with armed groups. And we also mainly work in classifying situation of violence, meaning that when hostility starts, when there's some fighting happening, we decide, is there just a situation of violence or according to international humanitarian law? Is there an international armed conflict or non-international armed conflict which triggers the application of the conventions? Thank you very much for that recap. And it's always so incredible, the work that the associates do here at the ICRC and so much out of a one-year traineeship. But I also really appreciate hearing your background because I think it's incredibly inspiring to hear how you were able to nuance the positives and the negatives of the humanitarian sector and not fall into the trap of cynicism or apathy, but see it as a flawed system that you believe that you could be a part of and make better. So I really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing. So to follow up, How do you think youth such as yourself working on such themes, especially ones so technical, can contribute to international humanitarian law and policy? I think what's really important to take into account is that uh, our generation, so I'm 28, our generation was raised in a way where we have so much access to information. So when a teacher or family was telling me something, I always have access to information to double check it in a way. And I could also have access to information from the other side of the world. So we come as a really assertive and confident generation in what we think because we're able to have information to confirm that we are thinking the right thing in the right way. So I think in a way, what's important with us is that we're going to come in this in this field with the certitude that we're not going to compromise in our values and we're always going to ask for more. So we're going to say thank you to the generation before for everything that they acquired for us. But we're going to say we want more gender equality. We want more rights for people with disabilities. We want the consequences of intersectionality to be taken into account. We want racism to be taken out of law and policy. And we want to apologize for it. So I think that's also what's really important with us. And something else is that we know how important and how urgent it is to change the law or to change the policy when it's needed, because we grew up with seeing 
the consequences of armed conflict and also having the names to call them. So, for example, if I'm talking about Rwanda, it was a genocide. When I'm talking about South Africa, it was apartheid. When I'm talking about Iraq, it was occupation. I mean, we grew up with those words, using those words, using international law in our day to day. So I think that's why we're needed in this way. And I think that that's a great uh, opportunity to introduce our next guest, Kai von Murray, who studies in international affairs at the University of Saint-Galan and featuring a bachelor's thesis on the ICRC that led to a traineeship with the ICRC, followed by a diverse experiences in startups and the banking sector. And so currently, Kai is pursuing a double degree in CEMS, management, international management, and a master's in international affairs. And very importantly for our conversation today, she is leading the Circle of Young Humanitarians as their president. And this is an organization that she founded herself. Welcome, Kai. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, hello. Thank you so much um, for having me. It's an honor. Thank you. To begin with, we would love to learn about the who, what, when, where, and why of the Circle for Young Humanitarians. Could you please begin with a description of the organization that you spearheaded, how you came to create this organization, and then outline some of the core goals for a youth organization such as the COIH? Of course. I'm happy to. So the Circle of Young Humanitarians is a politically neutral nonprofit association based in Zurich and established in collaboration with the ICRC back in spring 2021. So basically, we recognized in today's digital age that young people are constantly exposed to social media images and videos depicting conflict and war, which often leaves them feeling powerless. Moreover, like the volume of information available can also lead to misinformation and polarization. And this potentially is breeding mistrust in humanitarian organizations and even broader societal systems. So the circle aims to bridge exactly that gap between the humanitarian world and the next generation, because we believe that young people, what people think about war and other humanitarian emergencies today will affect the direction of the world in the future. So basically to facilitate this, the Circle offers a platform to promote an open and effective dialogue, yeah, to stimulate discussions on global humanitarian challenges. An example for our efforts was the first Young Humanitarian Summit held March in Zurich under the ICRC's patronage. This two-day forum successfully gathered over 300 young individuals where we tried to foster an intergenerational and interdisciplinary exchange in the humanitarian world. And yeah, so basically to your second part of the question, like how I came about founding the Circle of Young Immaterians, it actually started, or I have to like mention the primary school. I remember being captivated by a story of a friend shared about her father's work at the ICRC. So her father was an ICRC delegate. This early exposure sparked a keen interest in the humanitarian work, leading me to volunteer for the Austrian Red Cross and the hospital in Ecuador during my gap year after high school. As you mentioned in the beginning, this led me to the traineeship um, at the ICRC in 2020, during which I noticed a disconnect between young people in Switzerland and the so important work of humanitarian organizations such as the ICRC. So realizing this need for a platform that could bring young people closer to the humanitarian sector, I shared my vision with my supervisors at the ICRC back then, uh, Esther Schaffelberger and David Andres. <laughs> Shout out to them at this moment. <laughs> they were supportive right from the start. And yeah, encouraged through that, I reached out to friends to gawk their interest. 
And this led to dis discussions with Jessica Eberhardt and Leonie Basler, um, two friends of mine who eventually then became my co-founders. And then together, the three of us, we developed the concept further and worked together towards bringing this visionary initiative to life, the Circle of Young Unitarians. So yeah, basically what started two and a half years ago, I would say with three young ICRC enthusiastic women turned into an organization with 40 young professionals and students volunteering for the Circle's cause. And this cause, to summarize, is really to, it's more than just a series of events. The Circle aims to act as a compass, pinpointing away from conflict and towards peace. We're about building bridges and reminding everyone that building peace requires effort and commitment. Thank you, Kai. I think it's always really important to pinpoint the entry point of people where they are able to see, ah, I see myself as part of this movement. And you even took it a step further of saying, there's a gap here that I need to fill and really taking the initiative to, to do that. It's very motivating to hear. And I also want to hear more about that connection with uh, social media and contemporary conflicts as well later in the discussion. But first, I'd love if you could help us understand why it's so important for youth to have a platform such as yours? And perhaps more importantly, why is it important for them to get involved? I guess with social media, you, you touch upon something already very important for that uh, for me to answer. So I really believe it's vital for young people to have a platform like the Circle of Young Mutarians because we try to address challenges they face in today's rapidly changing world. So today's young people are, of, are also known as the crisis generation. So youth um, which are living through an era defined by one crisis after another, the financial crisis, a global pandemic, and now for some, the reality of war on their continent. So this experience is, well, if you talk about young people also in, in Europe, so this experiences have driven many to protest and activism. And even though the confrontational nature of such actions, while really powerful often, doesn't always foster constructive and dialogue or sustainable change. The need for such a platform is also compounded by the fact that this generation is the first to grow up entirely in the digital age, which you just talked about. So even though it has great opportunities, it also means that, as I mentioned in the beginning, they're bombarded daily with images and reports of conflict and war. So the circle basically uh, offers a different way forward. It's a space where the digital fluency of the younger generation is not only understood, but it's actually integral part of its operation as the circle is youth-led. It provides a space for engagement on humanitarian issues in a language that basically resonates with younger generation. And I think that is key. And yeah, by cultivating like such a solution-oriented environment, The circle enables young people to overcome their feeling of helplessness and really fosters a sense of agency. And I guess that is exactly through their involvement that trust is built, outrage is replaced by optimism, and media narratives are shifted from glorifying conflict to actually highlighting peace-building efforts. So the active role of young people is essential in promoting the understanding that peace is hard work. Thank you. Such important points, Kai, all of them. I appreciate you sharing them. And we are listening. So please keep speaking. I'd like to speak with our final guest uh, before continuing the conversation with the three of you, Silvia Helvez, who has dedicated over a decade to volunteering with the Colombian Red Cross. Her involvement spans diverse programs like youth leadership, 
peace, action, and coexistence, as well as initiatives addressing weapons contamination, nonviolent communication, and education. Silvia is a former National Youth Representative and member of the Colombian Red Cross's National Board. She holds a bachelor's degree in international relations and is pursuing a master's in sustainable peace building. And currently, she serves as the vice chair of the International Federation of the Red Cross Global Youth Commission. Thank you very much for joining us today, Silvia. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here today with you. Sylvia, can you outline how you have come to volunteering as a youth for the Red Cross Red Crescent movement and what experiences you've witnessed as the vice chair of the International Federation of the Red Cross Global Youth Commission? Yes, I think certainly um, experience a life in a country that has been affected by armed conflict for so many years had a profound impact on myself. So the exposure to the hardships of conflict triggered a deep sense of empathy for those who suffer. And at the same time, witnessing the injustice of armed conflict fueled it. a desire within myself to make a positive difference. I joined the Red Cross because I was sure that was the right platform to make a change. First, I joined because I wanted to learn first aid, but then after knowing all the different programs and projects, I was completely sure I was in the right place. So I particularly started volunteering in the youth group with a weapon contamination project. So I was going each weekend to the countryside to do risk education, especially for children, adolescents, to create awareness on the path of, to follow for victims uh, that were affected by landmines or any other remnants of war, and how their rights could be reestablished. So this was something that really marked my life as well, also because this was like a silent issue that was happening in the country. So despite I was knowing all these things were happening there, people in the cities were not aware of it. So I started getting involved in more and more in youth leadership in the organization. And yeah, it led to also bring more young people to work in the same organization and volunteering in initiatives for peace building. I think also uh, this need or this sense of responsibility for community development was, of course, initiated by my early experiences with conflict, but also the education that the Red Cross provided. So I was always following this desire to contribute to initiatives at a local level, but also at a global level. So I ended up being the vice chair of, of the Global Youth Commission. And here uh, I found an interesting perspective because I found one of the things that we are working now with in the Youth Commission is the young people around the world are pursuing the movement to create specific strategies for young people that are frontliners or that are going under crisis. So this is something that is really making a change uh, in the way we do things, also because it's not only they sharing their own experiences as part of conflict, but also creating awareness with other young people around the world that are not necessarily affected by conflict. So the sense of empathy that is created around all young people, their interest in making change is 
amplifying the platform for for the organization to to create awareness and to make changes. Thank you, Silvia. It's really important to see how your role evolved over the last decade. I think that that perspective would be useful for my next question, which is, in your experience, what's the impact and importance of the diversity of youth engaging in such issues for the humanitarian sector, especially within a movement as large as the Red Cross Red Crescent? Yeah, I think something that is really important is that First of all, the diversity also fosters creativity and innovation. So it leads to the development of fresh solutions to complex humanitarian challenges. So young people around the globe are developing new programs, projects, and methodologies that are aiming for peace building. Just to, to collect some examples, in Colombia, after the peace agreements was signed, Young people were working in the country um, with a methodology of nonviolent communication, teaching other young people. So they reshaped this methodology and it was used to teach ex-combatants from the guerrillas in the reincorporation process of society. And at the same time, after so many years of conflicts and violence permeated all spheres in the society, Young people were bringing new programs to schools, new programs to work with children, new programs to ensure that everyone was first aware of the importance of, of peace, but second, teaching how it is important to develop a better understanding among different between the difference amongst people. And I think at the same time, the humanitarian sector gets benefited from this diversity in terms of the amplification of voices. So it, uh, when you have youth engaged in your processes, this is ensuring a broader representation, including like those that are traditionally marginalized or overlooked. So this inclusivity helps address the diverse needs and concerns of affected communities, and it leads to a more comprehensive and equitable humanitarian response. And what I think is the most important thing about engaging youth, it's the long-term sustainability focus because young people tend to emphasize in those long-term sustainable solutions in all the humanitarian efforts. So usually focusing on addressing the root causes and promoting solutions that contribute to wider and longer change. Thank you, Silvia. And while you're speaking, it was reminding me of, a, I might misquote this, but I think it was Isaac Newton who said, the reason I can see so far is that I'm standing on the shoulder of giants. And, you know, we have to build on what's there, what works and what doesn't. But you also have to have someone who can look at the horizon in a new way. And I think that that is the youth and that is this creativity and innovation that you're, that you're talking about there. So thank you for sharing that perspective. I'm incredibly humbled by all three of you and your experiences today. So I'd like to open the floor back up for your opinion on what's still needed for youth engagement in the sector. What are the current obstacles that we're facing and the messages that you do want to get out, particularly the ones that may impact legal and policy elements that we still face today? Can I start with you, Judy? Yes, absolutely. So um, I would say that in order to work in this sector, and I'm talking about international law, maybe more broadly, you have to go through some socioeconomic barriers. 
And for example, if you take the case of somebody from a modest background who is going to public university studying law, you have to be first lucky enough to have one class in international law, lucky enough that the teacher is inspiring enough to make you believe that you can have a career in this field, which is not a given when you have nobody around you telling you that it's a possibility. Then when you start getting into a professional sphere, you have to go to internship and internships are either unpaid or really lowly paid. In France, I was paid 600 for three different internship. So if you don't have support, you cannot live with it. And then if you're trying to be more specialized and maybe go higher in the international sphere, you might want to do your study. So for example, I did an LLM and I was lucky enough that a bank agreed to give me a loan that I'm going to pay for a few years now. But that's not the position that everybody is in. So with everything that I talked of, we lost 70% of the youth which is trying to get into this field, in my opinion. So I know that there's a lot of effort which is being made by our organization to work with academic circles everywhere around the world to have people from different backgrounds, but still more work needs to be done. And then the second thing I would like to talk about is also touching on the issue of diversity. When you talk about the international world from the outside, you have this impression that the people making the decision don't look like you. You have this impression that the world of international law and international humanitarian law, it's an outdated fact and an outdated conception, but you feel like it was made for and by Europeans to help the poor people in other countries, when in reality, now it's evolving. This field is evolving. There's more and more national people being involved in humanitarian aid at every level. But when you look at the people on top, they don't look like me. Mm -hmm. So that's also, in my opinion, a barrier in getting into this field. I hope they will look like you, exactly like you, actually, in the not-too-distant future. Thank you for sharing that. Can I open the floor to Kai and Sylvia, if anyone would like to share their opinions as well? Yes, sure. So I think Shili highlights already crucial points, outlining the social economic barriers as well as the diversity aspect. Maybe to add upon that, I would say to enhance youth engagement in humanitarian efforts, we must establish firm accountability for breaches of humanitarian principles to maintain young people's trust. Furthermore, I would like to add that education, humanitarian law and human rights should be accessible already very early on. So empowering youth to be informed advocates. And yeah, I also had a point regarding inclusivity, but more like focusing on also bringing young people to the table, that they're also actively shaping policy. Thank you. Okay. And Sylvia? Yes, I can absolutely share the same perspective um, as them, but um, I think it's important also to highlight that usually youth engagement is seen as participation only. So, when people think about our uh, engagement, they say, okay, I'm going to invite some young people here to this activity, or they are going to be the beneficiaries of this initiative. But usually young people are not engaged in decision-making processes at all levels. And I think this is a thing that should be the main effort now, not only because it's, um, you know, like a thing that will foster sustainability, but also because it represents different way of seeing the world. I always say like being young is seeing the world through different lenses. Uh, so that perspective should be brought in all the legal and policy 
developments that um, we are trying to do today. Also, because the peer-to-peer education is key to drive changes. And when you have people that are, as it was mentioned before, that when you see yourself reflected in another level, you feel also more engaged. Thank you, all three of you. So I'm hearing accessibility, accountability, diversity, and incentivizing these roles as well, incentivizing, making accessible and making it possible for people who have the motivation to actually reach these positions. Thank you for that. And I'd like to now come back to the issue of social media that we touched upon earlier. And Kai, maybe starting with you, because we put a pen in that conversation earlier, could you illustrate for us how you would recommend to communicate and keep international humanitarian law relevant? and respected in today's era of misinformation, disinformation, and hate speech, and communication overload? Yeah, so I guess, well, it is difficult, but like I would say, to maintain the relevance of IHL amid, yeah, how, how would you call it, the digital, today's digital noise, <laughs> we should focus on concise, engaging social media content, interactive educational tools, and yeah, compelling visual storytelling. So basically really making, if you talk about how to reach young people, so there would also be important to collaborate with educational institutions and collaborate with influencers. So really young ambassadors, which ensure that the message resonates with the next generation. So maybe summing up, I guess it's about making IHL accessible, relatable and interactive for all. Thank you, Kai. I took copious notes there because that's very much part of my role here at headquarters as well. So uh, taking those on board. Julie, maybe turning to you next, especially with your different roles that you've had in your traineeship, what have you seen works and doesn't in terms of communicating IHL? I mean, I will absolutely share what Kai says in being concise and having something in a format which is easily shareable. I have to say today we're at a time where so many, so many young people are getting involved and using terms of IHL, terms of international law. And it's incredible. I mean, I have people from my hometown, the 700 inhabitants, who are talking to me about proportionality. I mean, it's something which is incredible to me. And I think now is the time to grab them and make them interested Mm -hmm. and help them in understanding what they're saying and also giving them access to information, which is easy package because all they want to do is to say, I know about this issue and I want to share it with people. So let's use them. Let's use them to give the right message out. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It it breaks my heart that the principle of proportionality is a household term and what that means that it has to get to there. But it is the reality and people being informed, let's use that to ultimately prevent and reduce human suffering in that context, certainly. Sylvia, can I turn back to you for for your perspective as well? Yes. I think when we consider about keeping the IHL relevant, we usually think like we have to keep up with the technologies and development, and that's okay. But also we need to put and maintain the focus on the diversity and differences among young people around the globe. If we think in people that are living in the cities are not the same people that are living in the countryside, people that have that are more affected by the conflict usually do not have um, enough access to technologies. And there is where we need the IHL the most because these young people that are in in those regions 
are the ones that are more vulnerable and that might end up being part of the conflict or taking a side because they are in a high risk of recruitment or, you know, like the generational trauma also leads to them to pick a side. So I can say that we can use technologies in the, you know, like media and to keep up with young people in the cities, but there with the young people in those situations, we need to keep the traditional ways. I remember when I joined the Red Cross, the first training we had as volunteers was Red Cross principles, Red Cross history, and international humanitarian law. And it was my first contact with international humanitarian law. And we have volunteers in like villages that start when they are very young and they start learning about international humanitarian law. And this gives a different perspective. And it's not only a way to preventing these young people from joining a side in the conflict, but also is helping us to maintain, you know, the links between the parties in the conflict. So we have found many situations where young people were knowing someone that was part of the conflict, and they started this conversation around international humanitarian law, about the rules of war and how civilians must be protected. And it has helped a lot. I think in the example of Colombia, it has helped the Red Cross and the International Committee a lot to engage with the communities and to have uh, to gain this trust among parties. So I think we cannot forget the traditional ways as well to develop and create awareness regarding international humanitarian law. Thank you, Sylvia. And I'd like to stay with you for the last question as well, and that I'd like to pose to the other two. Is there still hope? Do we have hope? And what are the some of the things that the youth of today and tomorrow can still hold on to and point us towards? Absolutely, yes. I would say yes. I know that there is like some trend around and people talk about this and say young people and lucid hope because they do not see the changes happening as fast as uh, we could, as we wish we could see it. But I've also seen like being like in this global position with the Red Cross, all the efforts that young people are doing around the world, all the energy that they are bringing, all the new perspective, all this desire to build community and to drive changes is amazing. The level of engagement, like when people are volunteering, is incredible. Like people, you know, like sometimes giving their whole weekend to the Red Cross to spread messages, to build empathy among people to relieve suffering is something that is really inspiring for everyone. And also when you think about these young people taking leaders, leadership positions, it's also that something that is happening slow, I know, it's like it, it would require like generational changes, but I think definitely we are in a good path. And I also always trust this, like, the human capacity to be resilient and to find new solutions is something that it has amazed me since I was a kid, like how we find solutions for everything. So definitely, I think we still have hope. Yes. Thank you, Sylvia. Can I pass back over to you, Kai, for your views on this? Absolutely. There is always hope. <laughs> My experience with the Circle of Young Maternities has only reinforced this belief. Yeah, firstly, because of the point Silvia just touched upon already, that we see young people come together, eager to engage and make a difference. 
And this shows that the next generation is not only aware, but it, they're also committed to addressing global challenges. The second one, the digital age for all its pitfalls offers unprecedented opportunities, like, for example, to connect with like-minded individuals across the globe and use technology to amplify all their voices. And yeah, lastly, organizations are increasingly recognizing the value of including young people in decision-making processes. So yeah, I guess to the youth of today and tomorrow, I would say... If I may <laughs> hold on to your passion, your ability to connect and innovate and your will to create a better world, because these are the tools to create a change we wish to see in the world and give us all a reason to be hopeful about our future. Absolutely. Very well put. Every tool from the invention of fire to nuclear energy can be used for good or used for not as valuable parts of humanity. So thank you. Well put. Uh, Julie? I mean, I share the comments of Sylvia and Kay. I think, of course, there's hope. Uh, talking about law in general and international law, let's remind ourselves that it's a really young body of law. I mean, states were authorized to use force against each other until 1945. This is new. And of course, there's still variation and there's still issues. But now they're not authorized to do it. They have to justify themselves. So that's something. And for example, when we talk about the Geneva Conventions, the rules of war, which are unanimously adopted, I mean, and they are respected. And we will celebrate next year the 75th anniversary. This is the, the life of my grandmother, basically. Mm -hmm. Imagine how much we can do in the years to come, in the decades to come, in changing the law. The law is established and we have rules, but we can ask for more and we can do more and we can make states agree to do more. And that's why I have hope. I also have hope because there is a lot of initiative to include different, not only diversity within the staff, but also within the reasoning and what we use. For example, in the legal division, you have two people who are working on finding the similarities between Islamic law and international humanitarian law. For me, that gives me hope because we're saying that there's this huge part of the world which already has rules and laws. We can not only use it to discuss with them, but also to enrich our own body of law that they also accepted. And finally, I would say what gives me hope is to work here at the ACRC, to be able to share experience with brilliant colleagues, whether it's my fellow associate or my supervisors, all of them are here to fight to protect victims of armed conflict, and they're brilliant. So if so many brilliant people can come together to work here, that gives me hope as well. Thank you so much. And also, yeah, hope does come with a bigger picture, doesn't it? There have been very important parts of humanity from the very beginning. It's about shining light on those, giving that more movement, more momentum. I would love to continue this conversation because this is frankly one of my favorite podcasts that we've done so far on humanity and war. But unfortunately, we need to, to wrap up for today. But thank you again to Kai and Sylvia online and Julie here in the studio. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today, and we very much look forward to watching your careers and your destinies unfold. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. The Humanity and War team would like to give a special thanks to the following colleagues featured in this episode. Juan Jose Ruiz, Juan Ting Young, Julia Reus, Elena Hammerstrom, and Mukta Dere. If you enjoyed this episode of Humanity in War, 
Be sure to check out the ICRC's Humanitarian Law and Policy blog at blogs.icrc.org slash lawandpolicy, a library of posts, all with audio reads on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify.